Charles Olson called the poem a high-energy construct and high-energy discharge and said that if a poet could take energy and allow that into a poem without any energy loss, she'd be on to something. And a friend's suicide would seem to be one of those energetic events that begged to be covered in verse. But one poet says, give the book too much emotion and it cannot survive. That poet is Andrew Schelling, a poet, instructor, and longtime teacher at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in Boulder, Colorado, part of Naropa University, and also a teacher at the Deer Park Institute in India. Andrew, a pleasure to talk about your new book. This is a tight and powerful little book with a haunting cover that utilizes many other obscure languages, including those from Native America, as one would expect from the title from the Arapaho Songbook. The initial inspiration for the book uh, seems to be uh, was for you to better understand your southern Rocky Mountain bioregion. At least you say that in the introduction. Can you talk about that? Sure. I've been um, doing bioregional studies for quite a few years. I've really, since moving to Colorado 22 years ago, thought of the Indian peaks here as in a very profound way, my personal teachers, my instructors in poetry, my instructors in ways to live. And where uh, I live, we're in a drainage system that is right beneath two peaks, uh, these days called South and North Arapahoe Peaks. So the uh, creeks, the drainage systems, the water cycles move down from the Arapahoe Peaks. And I've been trying to learn what I can of the geology, the weather patterns, flora and fauna, and uh, it began to dawn on me at some point that I should really begin to dig into some of the native languages which had been around holding this watershed or this bioregion much longer than any of the um, more recent immigrant languages, Spanish, French, or now what we call English or English-American. What do you think it is in the native languages that will give you a a window into a deeper understanding of the bioregion? Well, there's many dimensions to that question. I think most immediately I was drawn in simply from place names. Quite a few of the natural features, the geological features in this area are either Arapaho words or on occasion uh, Cheyenne or Ute words, or they are direct or indirect translations from those languages. And so I think my first impulse was to learn what I could of the place names. And then I began to discover that actually from that, I saw that the uh, native languages here had just familiarized themselves for a much longer period with the natural cycles here, and that there was a great deal of lore buried in those languages that showed a sort of easy fit that the newer immigrant languages have not achieved yet. You say that the mountain peaks, you see them as your, the Indian peaks, that is, those mountains, you say that you see them as your teacher. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I can a little bit. Um, I think you yourself have done some wilderness exploration and probably scaled a few peaks. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the wilderness and a lot of lessons to be learned from solitude and for want of, uh, you know, sort of a more convenient 
vocabulary, I would say that the mountains teach you a great deal about one's own limitations, teach you a great deal about your capacity for courage, for endurance. Um, some of us who go into the mountains and also have chosen this difficult path of poetry find that inexplicably poems begin to appear to us when we get up high. So that would be at a sort of external level that the mountains really have, you know, great lessons about one's own um, capacities uh, for self-reflection and for strength, but also there's the uh, mystery of creativity. Where does poetry come from? Where do the art forms come from? Where do fantastically interesting turns of phrase come from? And uh, so without meaning to sound too mystical about it, I find that when I get up into the mountains, a great deal opens up to me. Some might explain it away simply as oxygen deprivation, and that's fair. Yeah. Or some might uh, describe it with an animistic perspective and suggesting that there's incredible intelligence in the wilderness. I think there's incredible intelligence. You're absolutely right. I mean, you do, especially when you get into high altitudes, find um, natural cycles that have developed for millions of years, tens of millions of years, um, that have not been impeded very much. And simply by observing or living with those cycles for a while, you learn a great deal about the way the uh, universe moves and has come together. We're talking with Andrew Schelling. His new book is From the Arapaho Songbook. It's published by La Alameda Press of New Mexico. I'm Paul Nelson. Why is the effort to understand your bioregion important to you? Well, first of all, it's just an interest that I have. I'm curious all the time about who lives around me and by who I mean, you know, not just the humans, but the, um, the animal life, the bird life, the plant life. But I also think that, you know, there are other interests and other dimensions there um, that continue to draw me. I guess if I were to go back in time to some of the explorations I've made, I've always been extraordinarily interested in deep history and in the past as a way of sort of delving down into human consciousness, trying to understand uh, what the irreducible mind of a human being might be. And in a funny way, the deeper you go, the farther back you go, the more you discover not so much um, manifestations of human consciousness, but a kind of focus on animal life in particular and a way of thinking with animals that may prove um, about as deep-seated as we can get in our own consciousness. I know uh, some of your listeners have probably seen that movie Cave of Dreams that Werner Herzog released recently, um, which uh, takes you on an exploration of the Chauvet Cave in southern France. And uh, universally, when you go back, you find that the earliest art seem to be fixated on animals, and I don't want to say that this is simply um, sentimentality about animals, nor uh, as simplistic as hunting magic, but there may be very profound ways in which human beings develop the sort of consciousness we have by thinking through animals as symbols, and not as static symbols, but as dynamic symbols that were both uh, food sources, 
uh, the source of clothing, the source of tools, and the source of very interesting behavior that in some way mimics our own and in some way actually defies our own sense of behavior. In terms of uh, the Native American approach to having totem animals is, is another aspect of that. Well, yes, that would be another aspect, surely, that um, not just Native American, but worldwide, um, the sort of earliest and most persistent stories seem to be built around animal characters of one sort or another. Children adore animal stories, and uh, the um, wilderness thinker, paleolithic explorer Paul Shepard used to speak about children's fascination not just with animals but with body parts as the butcher's instinct and he saw this as coming out of our deep old very intimate relationships with animals that we hunted and that we um, uh, uh, sort of were engaged in a rich exchange of resources with. You see parallels between indigenous languages and the imagistic movement in poetry. Can you speak to that? Well, I wouldn't um, make this a blanket statement, but I open my book with a quote from the um, fine anthropologist and linguist Edward Sapir, in which he um, says, single Algonquian words are like tiny imagist poems. And the language, as you pointed out, that runs through my book most persistently, other than American English, is Arapaho, which is an Algonquian language. And Arapaho, as all Algonquian languages, are what linguists call highly polysynthetic, which really simply means they're compounded of great many little pieces so that single words can um, really carry the weight of what we might do in American English with a whole sentence or even a little imagistic poem. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. Another thing I found interesting is uh, referenced on page 31 of the book, and you say that uh, deformation is your form of research. Can you speak to that notion and read the poem on page 31? Sure. I'll read the poem first and then see what I can do to speak to that line. Wild animal names are taboo in our mouths. Etinoti o'u, I am going to look for it. Linguists call it taboo replacement. We say racks instead of antlers. The visitor from up north. Etineyene. I am going to try to kill it. Deformation is my form of research. Thick fog, April moon. I guess um, what I was trying to get at in that particular line, deformation is my form of research, is that I think artists and poets are um, very deliberate researchers, but maybe use uh, slightly different tracking skills, if you will, um, than uh, a standard academic discipline would admit to. In the 20th century, with all the fascination in with depth psychology and then new territory claimed by avant-garde movements such as surrealism or Dadaism, I think we began to see that um, sometimes our errors our mistakes, our deformations, our um, moments of uh, candid exhibition of real thoughts rather than conventional thoughts 
have helped us see our way forward, not just in poetry, but in life itself. And we have a much broader sense of the human being because of those sorts of disciplines. And I don't mean when I say deformation simply to um, abusively mangle a field of study or a language, but that somehow I was trying to get close to what are the juxtapositions and the uh, odd arrangements that we use in any art to come to some kind of deeper understanding. This is both a uh, long-honored approach to poetry, a poetics, if you will, and also a minority view in using language that way and using the mind that way. It seems to me that, uh, that most poetry is of a more conventional notion, but you're attracted to that which is a little more difficult and interested in deformation as a form of research rather than what is, uh, what is current. You, do, can you speak to that? I think, yeah, I think you're right if you sort of survey what's going on out in a very uh, sort of standard view of poetry and maybe even an academic view. But as soon as you open the sense of poetry to all the language arts, children's games on the playground, popular songs, um, the kinds of explorations into tribal and preliterate traditions that the Russian futurists and then the uh, surrealists did, and the kind of work that Jerome Rothenberg has turned up in his anthologies, you see that there's an enormous amount of playfulness, an enormous amount of fascination with sound values that may have no lexical meanings or initiatory languages that transform or deform familiar words to try to reach into um, other realms of experience. And this always fascinated me. I mean, here we're sort of moving towards languages that are not explicitly considered poetic, but which I think really are, which would be prayer and mantra, jump rope rhymes on the playground, all manner of lullaby, nonsense songs, or so-called nonsense songs. And this is really an area that um, I particularly love, and one that I have um, spent a great deal of time studying. And you find these kinds of um, curious language uses um, all over the world, though maybe absent for the most part, from traditional English departments and their views of what poetry is. Talking with Andrew Schelling, his new book is From the Arapaho Songbook. I'm Paul Nelson. Andrew, tell us about Jonathan Cohen, a friend of yours. Well, he factors into this book because he was a very close friend who um, had some difficulties that sent him spiraling into a depression. He moved away from my area and actually moved to your area. And then uh, one morning he got up and uh, went out of the house and shot himself. And uh, that was something very painful for me personally. Um, You know, to have a friend in such severe pain and trouble and not be able to reach him. And of course, to Jonathan's children, to um, other friends of his. And so one of the um, threads that has gone through the book is an attempt to um, speak to him and also speak to um, the almost inconceivable notion of um, taking one's own life and past that, the kind of grander um, realm of death and how do we um, work with death? How do we address the death of dear friends, loved ones. Um, So, you know, I think it would be indiscreet to go too deeply into his 
troubles or exactly who he was, but um, I felt that uh, if if there's one task that poetry has often been charged with, it has been to help us not only understand death or come to terms with it a bit, but also to communicate across what sometimes feels like a very thin membrane between the living and the dead. So in this book, um, I'm both wrestling with, um, you know, the act of suicide with death itself and trying to speak to my friend who still feels very much like a presence to me. It seems that this part of the world with its uh, preponderance of overcast skies is uh, a place where suicide is uh, more popular. So it's it's not surprising that your friend would... Uh, would uh, would do that here in one sense, and I don't mean be, to be disrespectful. Page thirty four. Sure. No, I know. I know. I know that I had a um, a uh, cousin who um, went to Reed College down in Portland, and for a while she worked uh, at the college's suicide hotline. And her uh, she was trained as soon as somebody called up and said they uh, felt very depressed, and maybe they were going to think about taking their own lives to say, has it ever occurred to you, you haven't seen the sun in 30 days? (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's probably one of the first things you'd want to go to. Um, Or maybe uh, give them a ticket to swim so they could see the sun or the other side of the mountains. Can you read that poem on page 34? Page 34, yes. It was the town where my friend shot himself along the North Pacific Rim Salmon in creeks, deer in the hills, he stopped the car. Another friend observes in a poem that he did not anticipate plummeting into an abyss. He stressed rational inquiry, western red cedar, wild ginger. On page 38, there's a reference to Gary Snyder, and specifically his book Myths and Texts from um, early 60s, I think it was. How is his presence felt in your work? I mean, obviously, there's the bioregional aspect. Obviously, there's the connection to the First People, First Nations uh, cosmology. Uh, but it goes deeper than that. And, and, of course, he's a friend of yours. Yeah, Gary's been a friend and um, a, a poet who has shown many of us, um, you know, uh, some interesting directions, including, you know, some, many of these areas of um commitment that I've talked about, wilderness studies, bioregional studies, um, the incorporation of um, mythologies and old languages, and of course his book Myths and Texts is uh, uh, directly addressing um, that old realm of oral literatures that was picked up by anthropologists um, early in the 20th century. Um, So yeah, Gary's Gary's influence and example has been uh, very important to me and very important to a number of my friends. Um, This particular poem that you're referring to, I invoke it because I'm also seeing behind Gary another California poet and uh, outdoorsman and important thinker, the um, uh, sort of polymathic anthropologist, linguist Jaime de Angulo, who... um, uh, examined a great many of the native languages and traditions of California and found some crossovers between his work and Gary's work. And I wanted to memorialize some of that in this poem, and in particular, um, 
the notion of luck or power that a human being can contact. Uh, and this is still part of my meditation on my friend's suicide because I think there's a uh, deep-seated belief in all of us that there's luck or power or what you may call it that animates us. And if that drains away, we are very, very vulnerable. Yes, I will. This here Jesus, he was a great doctor. He had lots of power. I guess he was the best gambler in the United States. Myths and texts, the first place I saw it. Back of that I heard the Senor of the Brush tell it. People need power for gambling. Some might get women, find luck in the hunt, catch a song. Everyone knows luck when they got it. It runs out and you're done. Uh, maybe this is a good way to, you know, speak to a little of that question you'd come up on before. Deformation is my form of research. Um, those opening lines, this here Jesus, he was a great doctor. He had lots of power. I guess he was the best gambler in the United States. Appears in myths and texts. And I um, found it at some point also in Jaime D'Angelo's writings that had been published 50 years before Myths and Texts. So in a sense, this is a point where two books, um, one some writings of Jaime D'Angelo on the California Indians, and then Gary Snyder's early book of poetry, just for a moment landed on the same quotation. And I thought, um, here, 50 years later than Gary's book, I would let my book land on the same quotation and uh, see uh, if it could lead me um, deeper into my own poems. So in some sense, this may be the kind of work that a literary critic would do in a very different form. I've done it in a deform or a deformation. There are a couple of quotes in the book that um, I don't know might be seen as uh, as a poetics or as as suggestions for the poet. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, about emotion. One of them is about being superfluous. Give the book one superfluous word and it won't survive. Is uh, one of them. And there's another one about emotion. Yes, I drew both of those from uh, Tang Dynasty or Sung Dynasty Chinese calligrapher who was um, addressing both the art of poetry and the highly refined Chinese art of brushstroke calligraphy. And I think um, a lesson that many of us have learned um, from some of the poetries of classical China, classical Japan, classical India, which is my own specialty, um, is the lesson of brevity or terseness and reticence and perhaps the power that comes from not saying everything but leaving a great deal for the reader to discover herself or himself through the reading of the poem. I was particularly struck by some of these notions that too much flabbiness is going to make the poem die away. You know, giving the poem that those superfluous words are going to make it um, not nearly so durable. And uh, you had asked me about the mountains as my teachers. This is, of course, one of the teachings of the wilderness, and in particular high-altitude 
wilderness. You need to go in prepared, but you need to really know what it is exactly um, that you carry with you, because if you try to throw everything into your backpack, you'll be so burdened down that you can't get up a high slope. You certainly can't get up to a peak. And so um, one of the ways in which wilderness explorations has taught me about poetry is this sense of uh, not carrying anything superfluous, knowing exactly what your gear is, what the limitations of your gear is, what you can do with it. And I would say you could extend that directly to um, a poet's use of language. You could also use that other quote that I was referring to, give the book too much emotion, it cannot survive. You can use that in terms of a wilderness experience because emotion doesn't serve you very well in the bush. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's a certain kind of clear-headed instinct that you need to follow, and I think that's very much what you hope to do with poetry. I mean, you want the emotion because, as Ezra Pound says, only emotion endures. So I guess um, uh, perhaps in the sense that I was using it in the poem, giving a book too much emotion would be emotion that is uh, artificially whipped up, in other words, sentimentality. Right, which is a very superficial level of consciousness. Was it the pound quote? Was it a Zukovsky then, a corollary to that, only emotion objectified endures? Uh, that may be Zukovsky, yeah. I've heard that quote, and that would very likely be him, yeah. You also have a line in the book that says, uh, it talks about the power of grammar. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about what you think that power entails, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but is there any link to how poetry has been marginalized in the industry-generated culture and the power of grammar? Well, let's begin first with the power of grammar. Um, this now takes me to you know another area of study. I've spent 30 years studying Sanskrit, Sanskrit language, and have um, oh, translated something on the order of four or five hundred poems from classical India. Um, there's a word in Sanskrit that many Americans know now, Shakti, which is a sort of um, uh, deep-seated power in anything. Um, in the traditions of yoga, the Shakti is considered to be a feminine power coiled at the base of one's own spine, sometimes called the Kundalini, and the task of yoga is to arouse it, to awaken human consciousness. Um, other parts of India personify the Shakti as a female deity uh, that is the sort of um, fecund uh, principle of nature. Um, I was intrigued to see that in Sanskrit grammar, the grammarians of the Sanskrit uh, language, who were far ahead of the rest of the world 2,000 years ago, um, considered every uh, grammatical structure to be a shakti, that every sentence in Sanskrit carries its own shakti, which is to say its own power to deliver meaning. And that power may be deeper than particular words in their vocabulary, though every word also will have its shakti. Um, so the power of grammar has always struck me as what we poets are trying to come to terms with, what makes a poem memorable, what makes it feel like, aha, this has really gotten to something deep. What is it that makes um, you know, a child or an adult go around reciting a line of poetry that they picked up somewhere, 
over and over again, and none of this was restricted to any particular culture. Um, the mileage we get out of lines from William Blake or from uh, William Shakespeare or from Emily Dickinson. Um, so I think the power of grammar, this is um, something that has intrigued me incessantly. And then those of us who are crazy enough to take on the study of difficult old languages find all sorts of remarkable uh, possibilities buried down in those old languages which we um, uh, like to steal and put into our own poems. Yeah, well, that's rather effective. Page 44 is the page uh, that we're talking about. Can you read the poem again? Humans, mammals, birds, lizards, all semantically animate objects, sun, moon, the stars. The constellations, too, are animate, nouns for spirits, ghosts, the word cottonwood. Some deer are just common deer, others doctors and chiefs, lone autumn cry of the white tail, the power of grammar. Yeah, so well done, so so chiseled. How did these poems come out? Is that the way your mind thinks exactly like that, or do you have to go back with a, a scalpel and uh, and prune away a few things when you write? Most of these poems came out very close to the form they're in. I had originally um, conceived the book as being a sequence of um, stanzas that were ten lines each, and then I began to discover that I had miscounted a number of them. Some were eleven or twelve lines, maybe one or two were nine lines, and uh, then I decided that the ten-line form, as attractive as it seemed initially, was a little bit artificial and I was going to let the poems stand as they came out. Um, I tend to edit a certain amount, but um, these poems largely um, emerged relatively quickly. And then once I had gathered them up and determined how many I wanted in the book, I uh, went back and did a little bit of editing, which expanded a few of them. Um, but uh, that chiseled quality is something that I was really attempting to go for. I wanted that, um, as you say, chiseled, but I would say also it has to do with trying to remove superfluous words and to try to get line breaks that uh, juxtaposed um, a range of possibilities next to each other. Yeah, the line break's very effective. Uh, our mutual friend Sam Hamill says you can tell whether has a, a person has an ear based on uh, what their line breaks uh, exhibit. Well, the line break is really the poet's major tool, I think. Um, I mean, that is really when you get down just a simply visual form on the page, which turns into audible sound in the ear. What's the difference between prose and poetry or prose and verse or stanzaic form is really that uh, the poet has one additional tool, which is the line break, and then that can um, uh, help you uh, minimize punctuation or use punctuation in a very different way. And uh, there's a lot of craft mysteries buried in the line break. I think that's, that's one of the places that poets need to train themselves. There's a poem on page 82 which has a reference uh, to the 21st century's uh, trivial economics. Is it, am I getting that right? Let me go to 82 myself uh, in the book here. Restless trivial electronics. And 
I'm getting a sense that uh, there's a reference to this, and it's almost the antithesis of what we were talking about earlier, that intelligence that's in the wilderness and uh, the, 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 you know, the 180 polar degree opposite would be that fascination with that uh, iPhone or with that, uh, uh, you know, whatever, you know, insert your favorite gadget in there. Uh, so there's a reference to that on page 82 and uh, really interesting development. You, I, I was driving down the streets of Vancouver, B.C., and I guess you can go to just about any uh, city in North America and see that. People waiting for the bus, looking down at their phone. People walking, uh, you know, bumping into trees because they're, they're focused on something else. It's a very interesting development. It's only really in the last 10 or so years. Yeah, well, you're right. I think uh, some of us like to hold out a bit, uh, you know, that Luddite heart that we have. Um, at the same time, you know, great many of the electronics have been profoundly serviceable and um, many of our young people are wizards with it and really do remarkable things but I think electronics like so many other um, aspects of our society if you're not careful um, they can really sap your strength, sap your moral power, sap your intellectual power Um, so this is not meant to be so much a slag at electronics in general, but the uh, restless and trivial use of them. And in fact, those two terms um, in my poem are italicized because I drew them from Henry David Thoreau, who shows up in the following line. And uh, over on the right-hand margin here is the date 11 June 1851, so I had lifted a few phrases and words out of uh, Thoreau's journal on that day, June 11th, 1851, including Restless Trivial, and I don't remember what he applied it to, but something that he was in his curmudgeonly way, um, you know, critiquing in the uh, Victorian society around him. So it's less about the electronics than the restlessness and triviality that, um, you know, practically... uh, any overly settled, overly civilized um, peoples might be prone to. Through a pitch pine wood, down a lower slope enclosed by aspen, damp mist, the beaver pond, its lodge four years empty night stars. I stand near the origin of things, bass note, night hoof prints, elk wariness, the 21st century's restless, trivial electronics, not what you look at, Thoreau, how you look, and whether you see. Yeah, so many people uh, not seeing and in such a hurry. There's a great line on, in uh, on the, the poem on page 86, Wyatt Earp's motto, you have to learn to be slow in a hurry, which is just so perfect for our time. Talk about, we, we talked about it earlier, and there are poems on pages 87 and 99 that liken the poet or writer to being a hunter. Can you speak to that? Uh, sure, maybe I should read the poem on 87 first and just say a couple words about it. A good hunter never lets anyone touch his tools, his bow, his arrows, his spear. Thus are pens guarded the notebooks and keyboards with masks. D.D. Kosambi says vagura, trap or snare, can refer to a writer. Antler research is one path. 
Her breasts are like bird songs, another. Um, that foreign word in there, or non-English word, vagura, is a Sanskrit word, which uh, does come out of the hunter's lexicon, meaning a trap or snare, um, but can be used to refer to a writer. And Didi Kosambi is uh, uh, now deceased, but was a uh, South Indian scholar, uh, Marxist, whose writings have taught me a great deal about how to read ancient India. But in this poem, I'm trying to get to um, some of the old magic behind poetry and some of the uh, superstition that we poets hold, um, uh, guarding our pens and our notebooks and keyboards, um, setting up our ceremonies in order to attract the um, divine influences to us. Um, much like a hunter is very, very careful with the tools and of their trade and very careful not to let um, other people mess with their um, significant tools. So um, that's the one on 87. And then you would also invoke page 99. The poem here reads, typically you see four toes in the print. The metacarpal pads larger than in canine tracks. Shall I carry a revolver? The wind carries odor of gunpowder. Courtyard mud holds the imprint. And learning how to track gives inference that narrative is the specific shape of your thinking. In this world, your spine's straight once the story is finished. When the story's fully told, your spine's straight as bluestone. Yeah, it, it goes back to uh, one of the mind-writing slogans that I know you've quoted before uh, that of Allen's, Allen Ginsberg. Poets are people who notice what they notice. And it seems that, uh, you know, tr tracking something, you really have to notice. I mean, when you're hunting, it's, a, it's quite often a matter of life or death. When you're writing a poem, maybe not that kind of urgency, but if you're writing for someone hopefully to read in 400 years, maybe it does have a similar kind of urgency. Yes, and I would also say in, in terms of that mind-writing slogan, notice what you notice, that um, would be key to a great many of us. I think there's a, uh, a way in which you can write very fine poems by beginning with an idea, beginning with a concept, seeing the form of the poem you want, um, and many poets out there manage fine with that. And then there are some of us who have come up slightly through different traditions or lineages that enjoy the poem as a kind of tracking exercise or a tool for understanding and like to go into the poem without really knowing what is going to be there and use the poem um, as our way of tracking. So that notice what you notice is um, one of the fine 20th century aphorisms um, that leads us uh, into what I think has wrongly been called spontaneity or spontaneous bop prosody, Kerouac's term, or spontaneous modes of writing. I think spontaneous um, maybe doesn't quite convey the level of attention and the level of uh, commitment and training that goes into this particular hunt that we're talking about. Yeah, not just anyone can do it. It's uh, it goes back to the Philip Whalen notion that his uh, his poem is uh, a graph or map of the mind moving, and I in my own life have seen that similarity. It's finding the natural shape of the poem 
and how it relates to the natural shape of one's life. And, and page 90, you talk about the, the find out the actual shape of our lives. Girls shouldn't go kicking around bare shit, jump over it, taunt it. That's crazy behavior, way past the limits, ha-ha-ka. A kind of crazy knowledge lies out there. To find out the actual shape of our lives, the far high mountains, origins of poetry. 94, there's also a reference to that. Maybe you can go into that and we can, we can cover that topic. What if you studied the teepee? Moccasins, parflesh of people who used to live around here. What if you jumped over bear droppings out in the hills? Grizzly has a huge anus. Bear makes a terrible husband. Not to make mind into something, not to push mind out of the way, but to discover, to recover mind's actual shape. Well, I'm playing a little bit there with a story that um, uh, Gary Snyder has written about. Uh, as has the anthropologist Catherine McClellan, story that's found all over North America and, in fact, all over the Pacific Rim about the uh, girl or the woman who marries a bear or, in some cases, turns into a bear or the woman who took a bear for a husband and uh, a kind of sense of the taboo of um, insulting that great denizen of the wilderness by... um, taking lightly its sign, jumping over the bear shit, or taunting it in some way. Grizzly has a huge anus. Bear makes a terrible husband. Um, But if you um, decide that you're going to take on these kinds of um, studies or court a little bit of danger, perhaps, um, there is knowledge to be learnt out there. I'll make this clear by reading the poem on page 95. What if you were a writer? Do you jump over the dictionary, insult etymologies, go looking for trouble or make fun of meanings? Here's a world where knowledge brings trouble. Words have a life of their own, each a tiny imagist poem. I blow across etymologies like girls who jump over bear shit. <laughs> but the notion of uh, a shapely life and a shapely mind—that's uh, another Allen quote. Uh, uh, art is shapely, mind shapely, or something to that effect. Yeah, mind is shapely, art is shapely. Yes, I think that's uh, a good adage. I take that to mean something like uh, each of us has a particular shape to our minds. And um, I think, personally, the the easiest way to find that shape is what are the narratives, what are the stories we like to tell, what are the stories that guide us in our lives. Um, And once you begin to get a little bit of a sense that your mind has a shape, or that mind, maybe it's not even ours, but that mind has a shape, then you can loosen up and trust yourself a little bit more with art and not have to follow... um, Oh, stringent rules quite so much because if mind is shapely, then the art that it produces will also be shapely. Yeah, and and if you're also interested in divinity, as you've mentioned, and uh, take something the notion of acceptance that can be in help in that way. And I think you were speaking directly to the notion of personal mythology, and if you begin to figure out that yours is one that's not working for you, you begin the effort to change it. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one other um, area of study that's interested me, and I'm not terribly good at it, but since it's shown up a little bit in this book, um, is uh, uh, learning a little bit of tracking in the wilderness. Um, uh, animal tracks works easy in the snow where the uh, tracks are often very vivid, but you can do it at any time of the year. Um, there's a man named Mark Elbrock who is published several fine books of tracking North American mammals. And uh, he has a phrase that really jumped out at me and I stole for actually the final line of uh, this book, which is uh, he says that tracking is where science and storytelling meet. And uh, in a sort of kernel, what he's saying is that you need to be deeply grounded in the sciences of natural history in order to be an effective tracker, and you have to be very observant. But at the same time, what you do with tracking is you begin to create a narrative about the animal that you're tracking. And um, that has struck me, the sense of the bringing together of science and storytelling, two realms that I think have traditionally in... Um, modern civilization been seen as um, almost polar opposites, uh, at least in the popular mind. It may be that, you know, neither storytellers nor scientists would believe that. But uh, I think this is, again, one of these places where I enjoy some of those metaphors of the hunt and the tools of the hunt and have been playful about treating my computer keyboard the way a hunter would treat a bow and arrows or a spear. Um, similarly, uh, because I think what we are doing is creating both a science and a narrative or storytelling that becomes then the shape of our lives, as you're pointing out. But you got to get a lot closer with a keyboard to really do any damage. Uh, depends on what you're hunting, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The last um, thing I'd like to ask you about is uh, there's a poem on page 105. And I think that's a, a great note on which to end. And maybe you want to set that up in terms of what inspired it and, uh, and perhaps uh, finish the interview with, uh, with the reading of that. Well, this is a little verse condensation of a passage that struck me very strongly from a writer who lives near where you live, um, the poet and uh, typographer and... Uh, translator Robert Bringhurst. He has a fine book on Haida oral literature. And um, this actually is drawn from his book, a, a little episode in uh, his volume, Story Sharp as a Knife. So let me read this. She continued speaking. The stories tangled into each other, raven dark wings by the fire, why do you recount the same stories? Why night after night? I am not, she said, doing it for my own ears. The spirits tell me they've no place to live. If you too would start singing, I won't have to repeat myself. And I suppose what struck me there is a couple things. One is that the spirits need some place to live and possibly that's why we tell stories and write poetry and the other is um, my American democratic sense that actually we should all be doing it. It shouldn't be a specialized career of some of us. That's just going to wear us out and it's going to feed into the whole, um, oh, commercialized, 
push of late capitalism that likes to separate out the serious arts and turn them into entertainment, um, and that actually I think a healthier soci society is one in which we're all telling our stories and all making our poems and not getting too caught up on who the famous poets are or who the great storytellers are. We'll know that. We'll know that in our heart. But um, I would like people not to feel that you're disempowered from singing your own songs, telling your own stories, writing your own poems, just because there are famous people out there doing that, and that uh, these things serve a real purpose in the ecology of our lives. And if, in fact, it is true we're in the age of late capitalism, I think that your book serves as a bit of a roadmap to whatever's coming beyond it, and hopefully it's a lot more equitable than what we're seeing right now. Andrew, thank you for your uh, time and for your fine work. Well, thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it. The book is from the Arapaho Songbook. Andrew Schelling has been our guest. It's published by La Alameda Press of New Mexico.